Well, let me start by saying that I'm a sinner and a hypocrite. I'm not worthy to, or qualified to speak to you this morning, but as Todd told me, if people such as me were excluded from the pulpit, all pulpits would be empty. So here I am, and having said I would do it because I thought it would be a day when no one would be here, I, I tried to get out of it and didn't have success. So let's talk about success in the workplace. Ezekiel was called by God to do something, given a clear job description and complete background information, but his measurable objection, objectives were easy. And whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are rebellious people, they will know that a prophet has been among them. Whether they listen or fail to listen is not a measure by which he will be judged for future promotions. He needed only to deliver the message. The listeners were then without excuse, and Ezekiel could have done his job well. When else have we seen an obstinate and stubborn people in action? We can look back to Jesus announcing the Jubilee. If you remember Luke 4, which we just heard, he read the scriptures in the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth. He read from Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then added that it had been fulfilled in their hearing today. This made their former neighbors furious and they wanted to throw him off a cliff, but he just walked through them and walked away. Isaiah 61 refers back to Leviticus, where God told the Israelites to work six years and then take a sabbatical seventh year, and after seven sabbaticals, have a jubilee where debts were forgiven and prisoners freed. If you look at 2 Chronicles 36, and when I say 2 Chronicles, I want to say I, for one, like Roman numerals. If you look at 2 Chronicles, the Babylonians conquered Israel and took them away in captivity. And what happened? They were removed from the promised land for 70 years. The number of years to fulfill all the jubilees that Israel neglected to observe. Who was the beneficiary of this jubilee? Not the people, they were in captivity. It was the land, the land had its rest because God's covenant is with all of creation. It's not just about us. So going back to Luke 4, Jesus ended his reading with the acceptable year of the Lord and left out the next phrase, which was the day of vengeance of our God. That sounds somewhat hopeful that he left that part out. So why were they furious? He was a local person. They knew him as a kid. He seemed to have done well. Jesus pointed out that no prophets accepted in their hometown. And then goes on to say that Elijah was sent to a non-Jewish widow and Elisha healed non-Jewish Naaman the Syrian because the locals were not receptive. That is what made them furious. Were they the obstinate and stubborn ones? Was the acceptable of the year of the Lord also for Gentiles? This was unthinkable. For them, this broke the norms and was unacceptable. We all like to know exactly where we stand, to know what is right and what is wrong, to see everything in black and white. I once knew a Presbyterian missionary who said that God is strategically ambiguous. By this he meant, we know about dinosaurs because of the fossils, but God didn't put them in the Bible or tell in detail how he created them. It would be easy to believe in a God who spells out all the details for you, but faith is required where there's ambiguity. We often like our world to be clear cut, right and wrong, no gray areas. This is an attractive nature of religion. It removes the fear of being wrong in an ambiguous situation. You can state truth with confidence. 
faith calms fears, you may be wrong. But the clear-cut world is not how God works. How can we live with strategic ambiguity? Scientists do it by having multiple working hypotheses. Where there is uncertainty, they live as if the hypothesis is true. For example, before the 1960s, the geologists thought that mountains and seas were formed by something called geosynclines. The weight of the ocean sediments pushed the crust down and the mountains up. It was a terrible theory, but it allowed geologists to predict based on an imperfect understanding. Then after 1964, they hypothesized continental drift existed, but no one knew how it worked, what the mechanism was. But they proceeded to do research as if it were true until details filled in as they went along. We can live as if something is true until we know that it is. We can live with uncertainty and ambiguity. We don't have to be certain of every little thing. Richard Rohr said, all of us, it seems, are trying to avoid the mystery in human life. Instead of learning how to carry it patiently as Jesus did, there are no perfect structures or perfect people. There is only the struggle to get there. The Bible is not afraid of a dynamic and unfolding understanding of God. I grew up in a Presbyterian church in a very blue-collar area. And if you don't know about Presbyterians, they assume that when you're born, you're full of sin, and it goes downhill from there. And so therefore, you have confession every week, uh, confessional prayer every week in church. I shouldn't say this, but Mennonites don't have a confessional prayer every week in church. I don't know what that tells you about it. Um, but on Sunday, the men who took the offertory and served communion dressed in their best and took on their solemn responsibility. As a child, I remembered little of these discussions, but one thing stood out to me through the heated words and angry debate. It was imperative that when leaning into the pew row with the offering plate, that the free arm be placed behind your back. Like that. Evidently, this is a biblical truth that could not be ignored. Others, no doubt from a free-thinking, loose-arm background, felt it was fine to just let it swing by your side. I count this in the realm of cultural noise, something that might be a good idea. Perhaps it was a result of a particular incident, like someone lifting a dollar from the offering plate with the free hand. But ultimately, it was not of eternal importance. It's church culture that can come or go with no great impact. It's noise. What is our cultural noise? We once had debates about the green curtain. It's gone and the church has survived. We were firm in not allowing absentee voting, but the pandemic removed that. I once asked our high school class what the unwritten rules were in church. They said, potluck food should be homemade, not bought. Never look back directly at someone while standing in a pew. And one never volunteers, you wait to be asked. Think for yourself, what firm rule you know and perhaps could be let go of after this year, this pandemic year, this sabbatical year? What practices do we have that have caused harm? Now we have a chance to reset, to begin anew, to leave mistakes behind. This is the time to heal wounds, to bring sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, free to live with ambiguity. For the past few years, we waited to see if we were the community we thought existed or we were going to look to others to bear our discomfort. It's not enough to say, well, we voted to become LGBTQ people, 
to welcome LGBTQ people. Now comes the rest of the commitment, the acknowledgement of the pain we have caused others and the steps to change our ways. We can't be a church that says, come here to meet Christ, but be prepared to bear our pain, which we choose to inflict upon you for, because for us, change is really difficult. Change is difficult. And resistance to change is often made visible by asking who benefits from the status quo? Who benefits from things not changing? Jesus was a threat to the way things were. Over and over, he asked people to change and they resisted. The people of Nazareth even tried to kill him. People in the Bible didn't like change. We are, in that sense, a very biblical church. We know that people are cruel. This is not a surprise to a Presbyterian. We start with being born a bundle of depravity and go downhill, as I said. But wouldn't it be a good to be a place, uh, part of a place where people are kind to each other? This is the year to take the next step. It's time to address our weaknesses and prevent the same pain in the future. How do we deal, how do we heal the wounds that we have inflicted? Thankfully, God gave us grace for the reset. Just as the land had its 70 years of rest, we have had our own sabbatical year. And last year, after last year, we now have an acceptable year. The first step is to acknowledge we did, in, in, did indeed inflict pain. In a recent example, Samantha's life was upended. We have tread carefully so as not to point fingers or upset anyone. It would seem that perhaps this is our very problem. We are so good at avoiding conflict that we tiptoe around it and thus allow it to grow. We need to admit that we have caused pain and for each of us individually and corporately determine how we will prevent that from happening again in the same way. There are several commissions in our church right now helping us to do this. What can we do to make it right? It's not enough to say, well, that didn't work out. We have to acknowledge the mistake and make amends, including how to ensure it won't happen again. We can welcome the change. This year is an excellent time to do so. We have a clean break. We don't have to resume where we left off. We can be welcoming of everyone. Avoiding, church and, avoiding change in churches has often involved someone else bearing pain so that a number of people don't have to. One tiny proposal is to remove the phrase a number of people from our vocabulary. Using a number of people allows one person to invoke an unknown crowd behind them. And in our conflict avoidance mode, we accommodate rather than ask, who are these people? If you have a question or concern, stand up and say it. And if others agree with you, they can join you. What small differences set others apart? What is our arm behind the back in ushering? Do they come from General Conference? Franconia? Are they Swiss instead of German? Italian? Do they live on metamorphic rocks? No matter the differences, we are all welcome to the Jubilee. There are no second class members. We are all released from captivity, whatever our captivity is. A different person does not threaten our community, they enrich it. Let us welcome the enriching differences of people who come from different backgrounds. Just a few months ago, I was sharing with Titus that Presbyterians love jello mold, jello salad at potlucks, lime jello infused with grated carrots and topped with mayonnaise. Titus informed me that the Mennonites he grew up among also liked jello salad but it was dark cherry flavor with canned fruit. Think of, a written, think of the richness of a community with both kinds of jello salad. <clears throat> In Mark Twain's Captain Stormfield's Visit to Heaven, 
the good captain finds that each person gets to use their gifts to the fullest. The street sweeper may outshine Shakespeare and finally get to show it. He also noted that the majority of people present were not white. How comfortable are we with a heaven where we are in a minority? If we exclude others based on sexual orientation, are we a community? If we exclude an ethnicity, genealogy, race, we are not a community. A community cannot be a true community if it excludes those who are different. It is not Captain Stormfield's heaven filled with diverse people using their gifts. Instead, it's a social club. A church defined by culture is not a church. It may, be, it may not be comfortable to adopt change. We may not succeed in the ways we said one should. Being faithful may result in changes we didn't expect. It may not even look like success, but this year is our year of opportunity. Of course, we are comfortable in the status quo. The change means someone must give something up. A number of people may not be happy. Our own government may object. But like Ezekiel, we must do what God asks, regardless if it is heard or rejected. We must take on the burden of those around us. We must proclaim release for the captives, freedom for the oppressed. We may not succeed in a normal sense, but that is not what God asks Ezekiel to do. If we stand with the oppressed, the forgotten, the pained, it doesn't matter if what we say is heard by those who oppose minorities or support white supremacy, they will know that a prophet has been among them. This is the year to do it. This is the Jubilee. This is our Jubilee. 